So we're reading um, Psalm 73, which you'll find on page 586. So Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw, their prosperi- when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up, wa- and drink up waters in abundance. They say, How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes, when you arise, Lord. You will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. 
But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I would tell of all your deeds. Good evening. Last week, if you were here, we started with the question, what is prayer? Get to the basics of it. And uh, we looked at prayer, if you remember, as a conversation, a two-way conversation between the believer and a personal God. And we unpacked what that conversation looks like. And I suggested then at the beginning of my talk that prayer is the highest privilege that comes with being a Christian. The greatest gift we're offered as we accept the Lord Jesus as our Savior and come into relationship to God our Father. Now this week, I want to look at the subject from another angle. I want to ask another question of prayer. And the question is, does it work? Does prayer work? Does it actually make a difference? Does it really change or achieve anything? And I think that's a question worth asking because many of us, I think, get discouraged at times in our prayer. We wonder if there's any point to it. What does it actually do? So with this question, we're actually getting to our subject from another angle, because we're looking here at prayer as petition. And if we ask, what is petition? Well, to petition is simply to ask for something. So prayer is conversation, but it's also a petition, to ask for something, to make a kind of request to someone in authority. That's what a petition is. And the Lord, our God, our Father, issues a clear invitation to us to do that, to petition him, to lay our requests before him. Philippians 4, verse 6, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests, to God. That's an invitation to petition. Now, why do we need to petition God, to lay our requests before him, to pray like this? Well, quite simply, because to be human is to be limited, weak, and helpless. We are, as as I suggested last week, dependents. That's what it means to be the human creature before the creator, to be a dependent. So our default condition as dependence is one of vulnerability. And as vulnerable creatures, we need help. Now I would suggest most of our petitions are related to the future, because that's where we really need help. One second from now is the future, and we never know what the future is going to deliver. There's some things we know and we don't pray about. There's some predictables. I don't think any sane person would pray for the sun to come up tomorrow. But if you're having an interview tomorrow, you might pray about that because it's unpredictable. You've got to get a train. Well, that is very unpredictable. And the panel, what kind of mood are they in? So you pray. You offer it to the Lord because you're a dependent. You feel helpless. So, Back to our question, does prayer work? What really happens when we make our request to God? And there's three things this evening that I want to suggest we can confidently expect as we pray and lay our request before God. 
And I, I give these to you because in your prayer life, I think it's so important to hang on to these, especially in the face of discouragement. So working through them, first of all, what can we confidently expect before God as we lay our request before him in prayer? Well, firstly, he always hears us. He always hears you when you pray to him. Psalm 5, verse 3, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. You hear my voice. It's the confident assertion that the Lord hears our prayers. And our life of prayer simply needs to start here, be grounded in this truth. My prayers are addressed to my Father in heaven, and my relationship is sealed to him through the blood of his Son, and nothing can shake me from that grounding. So that means that when I call out to him in prayer, he is listening. He's attentive to everything I, I, I bring to him. So God listens to each of us individually and specifically in terms of what we bring to him. Now that's really quite remarkable. Some of you here might have young children. You might have a number of young children. It's easy to get distracted between their requests. Can I watch TV, mommy, mommy, I need to go to the toilet, mommy, I need help with my my homework. And you're distracted. You can't give each your full attention. Well, that is never the Lord's problem. He can give each of us his full attention even when we're calling on him simultaneously. It's back to our catechism question. What is God? This is God. The God who can pay attention to everyone simultaneously because he's not limited like we are. And that's why he always has his ears open to you when you call out to him. And as your father, as my father, he knows us perfectly. He knows our weaknesses, our specific weaknesses. He knows our struggles. So when he listens, he takes all of that into account. He's the perfect listener because he's the perfect father. We live today in a time which has been called the age of distraction. And in the age of distraction, there's been a loss of deep listening. Here's a great comfort. When we talk to the Lord, he listens deeply. He listens attentively. And that's our encouragement as we begin. And his listening is true even when he doesn't provide an obvious answer. Because prayer as petition is a form of a request, it may or it may not be answered. That's just the nature of a request. A request can only be granted. We can't demand it. It's not guaranteed the answer. And many of our prayers aren't answered. That's just a fact. And I'm going to say in a moment, we should be glad that he doesn't answer all of our prayers. Because often we don't ask him for very good things. But he always hears us. And that is a wonderful comfort. So if our request is not granted, it's never because we've not been heard. Rooted in a relationship to the Father through Jesus Christ, we can be confident of that. He always hears us. Secondly, something we can confidently expect, that his first priority is changing you 
and not your circumstances. That's God's first priority, to change you and not your circumstances. Now, I would suggest most of our requests, most of our petitions tend to have a change of circumstances as their goal. Lord, please give me this job. Lord, please find me a husband or a wife. Lord, please cure my cancer. Lord, please fix Brexit. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that our Father deeply cares about all these things. All the external details details of our life that are important to our well-being, he cares about. Jesus said, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things, food and clothing. And he hears you like any good father would. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So he does care about the externals, our circumstances. However, without minimizing the importance of these things for our lives, we shouldn't forget that his number one priority is changing you and changing me. He wants to renovate us. He wants to transform us. That's what his work is chiefly about. Now, Paul hints at this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It's some verses about prayer. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. We've already read that. And then notice how Paul frames the outcome. And in doing that, the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lay your requests before God, and that's often going to be circumstantial. And what happens? The peace of God touches us internally and guards us. The change happens in us. It's the internal that changes most substantially. So that's a key part of what we might call prayer's work to renovate us, and to internally change us. And our Father does that because he loves us so completely that he's utterly committed to transformation, to making us more into his image and the image of Christ, to improve us. When it comes to parenting... Many of us will realize it's, it's quite easy, I would suggest, to, to focus on changing the externals of our kid's life. So little Johnny comes home from school and he's unhappy because all his mates have the latest smartphone. So Johnny lays his request before you as the parent with sighs and with tears. Oh, I'm not like my friends. They all think I'm out of it. And the easiest thing to do is to change their circumstances. Fork out the cash and buy Johnny a new smartphone. That's simple. It takes much more effort to try and change Johnny. To try and help little Johnny learn that it's good for him to delay gratification. It's pretty unpopular today, but that's what good parenting used to be about. You had to delay gratifying your needs and desires. Or in the words of the great English philosopher Mick Jagger, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you find you get what you need. Matt, you want to come up? No, okay. It's a great lesson. 
He's saying a very profound thing there is, 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 is Jagger. You can't always get what you want. But you wait and you get what you need, what you really need. So as we evaluate our life of prayer, it's so important for us to factor this in. God wants to change us first. And if your prayer life is like mine, there are lots of prayers not answered. Specific things that we've asked for. And it's easy then to think that our praying is futile because nothing appears to have happened. There's no answer. There's no change in the external world. And then it's easy to draw certain kinds of conclusions. And that's what we see with Asaph in Psalm 73. He's in a crisis. He says, I nearly lost my footholds. Here I am undergoing what he calls a constant affliction, and you, Lord, seem to be doing nothing about it. Meanwhile, I look around me, and all the non-Christians appear to be doing very, very well. Verse 3, I saw their prosperity. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong, and they're free from common human burdens. Well, then it's easy to get overwhelmed and very confused. What is God doing? Well, that's where we need this perspective, that the Lord is committed to changing us. And when he doesn't come through with a clear answer, this is something to be endured as part of prayer's work in us. And as we keep persisting in prayer, struggling with the Lord, in the face of no answer, a profound transformation can happen. Not in the external world, but in our interior life. Now, there are two ways this work can work itself out. Both of them interconnected. So here's the condition. The external answer isn't coming, but we're struggling with the Lord. We're persisting. And that presses us to wait on the Lord. And that's very important in terms of a command from the Bible. We're commanded to wait on the Lord. So as we cry out to the Lord in desperation, nothing happens. We can either give it up, that's passive resignation, or we can wait on the Lord with persistence, our hope fastened on him. This is what we see going on in Psalm 130. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. This is desperate crying to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And then later he says, Out of this crying, I wait on the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. You see the desperate cry, the Lord's listening, and then this waiting, this grasping hold of him. Unanswered prayer is intended to push us to this place where we begin to wrestle with him which is where waiting begins. And we often do that out of desperation. But that process of waiting on the Lord like this pushes us to the place where we hope in God. 
And that's what we see happening in Psalm 73. It pushes Asaph to, as he calls it, enter the sanctuary. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then in verse 23, the insight comes. Yet I am always with you. Circumstances not changing, but I'm with you, Lord. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. and Afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So by this waiting on this Lord, persisting, going after him, Asaph was able to find this internal equilibrium of where he stood with the Lord. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. So unanswered prayer... And its work in us presses us to wait on the Lord. That brings the change internally. And then secondly, it reorders our loves. It reorders our loves. This is where we constantly need changing. Our loves, as Augustine reminded us, become disordered. The Lord calls us to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. So he's first in my heart. But the priority of this love gets transferred to the wrong places. Now, not seeing an answer to our prayer forces us to to, to go after the Lord, to pursue him, and that plays its part in translating our love to the higher plane, back to where it belongs. Again, that's where Asaph ended up, God above all else. So we can say with him, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. The love reordered. So this is where prayer does a very important work. And to be aware of the Lord's priority can keep us from discouragement. His first priority is to change us, not necessarily our circumstances. So he always listens He's committed to changing us, and that happens in the process of prayer. That's its work. And then thirdly, the Lord works out his purposes through our petitions. This priority I've just mentioned shouldn't obscure the difference prayer really makes to the external worlds. So the Bible is clear that there is something causal about prayer. Or to put it more crassly, because we pray, stuff happens. And God works out his purposes through our petitions. So in Daniel 10, verse 12, the Lord said to me, Daniel says, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. They were causal. They moved me to do something. That's what your praying did. It really changed things. Now all this gets into the heart of some very great mysteries. And we can get in a terrible tangle if we begin to probe these mysteries. It gets to the heart of what we might call divine sovereignty versus human freedom and responsibility. This is a tricky issue. 
But I believe prayer as petition helps us to see that the Lord has given us real freedom to make a difference in the world. God hasn't created us as creatures like sticks on the water, just floating down the stream. We're not just determined by the great puppet master. God has structured his world, his creation, so that we, his creatures, are co-rulers with him. So his omnipotence exists with our finiteness. And C.S. Lewis reminds us that he will do nothing of himself directly which can be done by his creatures. Now, in prayer, we get to the heart of this. And Blaise Pascal, one of the great thinkers of the 16th century, into the 17th, who I love, he has lots of pithy sayings. He was the first one to invent sound bites, and he put it like this about prayer. God instituted prayer in order to lend to his creatures the dignity of causality the dignity of change in the world. He lent prayer to us for that purpose, for that reason. So that means as history unfolds, we're not mere spectators. And our praying is central to God's purposes being worked out in the world. And I actually believe prayer is the most significant way that this co-rulership between God the Creator and we His creatures the believer in Christ, this is how it comes together most perfectly. So we pray specifically and we ask the Lord for something. And Jesus reminded us that this needed to be according to his will. And that as a result of our asking, the Lord grants our request. And because of this transaction, something in the world changes. It shifts. That's the dignity of causality. And it's simply saying that prayer is that significant. It changes things. Now, I believe there are two essential caveats that need adding to this. Because many Christians go wrong at this point. The first caveat is this. Prayer is not mechanical. A few weeks ago, Helen, my wife, and I were were talking about someone we needed to make contact with. But unfortunately, we didn't have any contact details. So my wife, who's far more spiritual than I, said, well, let's pray. So she prayed that we would run into this person. Well, sure enough, two days later, we're down in town, and we bump into this woman. Wow. I felt rather humbled. I didn't think about it. To pray... So the question is, did the Lord answer Helen's prayer? Yeah. Seemed reasonable to me to say yes. I think the Lord answered her prayer. That's why we met this woman in town. My second question is this one. Can I prove that the Lord answered Helen's prayer? And there the answer is quite simply no. I cannot prove it. There are all kinds of other plausible explanations for why we bumped into this woman. It could have been purely a coincidence if I wanted to explain it that way. But I believe the Lord answered that simple prayer. Lord, help us to run into her in town so we can make contact. It's interesting, over the last couple of decades, I can't go into detail here, but 
groups of Christians have run experiments on prayer looking for empirical evidence that God answers prayer. I believe these attempts are very misguided to try and certify a connection between prayer and its effect. And I say that because prayer doesn't function according to some natural law in the mechanical universe of cause and effect. Prayer occurs at the level of the interpersonal, which can't be reduced to the empirical realm. In fact, prayer itself reveals a vital truth about the world we live in. It's an open universe. It's not mechanistic and machine-like and merely material. There's a realm of reality extending beyond all of this, and there's no scientific proof for this realm. So prayer is not mechanistic because it exists between persons, and that's why we can't reduce it to a formula. And there are lots of books on prayer that I think are highly formulaic. They make prayer mechanical. That's not how it works. The second caveat is that prayer is not magic. It's not magic. I was preaching a few years back at a large church in in South Korea, and I was taken into this massive vestry, and suddenly it was like a, a scrum, a rugby scrum. About 30 elders were surrounding me, and they started to pray. And after about five minutes, every one of them were screaming as one. That The din was unbelievable. And I thought for a moment, are these the prophet of, prophets of Baal? I felt like a, a, a Elisha on Mount Carmel. Um, that was, it was cultural, I'm sure, but it was a very strange experience. And occasionally I happened with Christians and I thought, this prayer time feels like magic. More than genuine request and petition. We have to avoid any notion of prayer as functioning as a kind of magic spell, one that acts upon nature. That's how paganism works. Paganism is all about channeling the power of the gods to your ends, for fertility, for power over your enemies. And prayer, therefore, in paganism is a a kind of manipulation. Now, there are believers who are taught to pray like this. It's a name-it-and-claim-it mentality. Some would say you appropriate first what you want through your imagination, and you call God into what you imagine, what you want your situation to be, and boom, he will grant it. He will give you the power. I've talked about the great English philosopher Mick Jagger. I want to talk now about a great American theologian called Bob Dylan. He condemned this approach in a wonderful line in one of his great songs. He says, of God, you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desire. You think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desire. You bring magic to it to get him on your side. The biblical picture of prayer is so different. We're the supplicants and God is the king we lay our requests before. Yes, we're co-rulers with him. But in Christ, with God as our Father, we don't have to manipulate his power onto our side in some kind of magic formula. We simply, in speech, lay our requests before him and wait on him. And because he has lent us the dignity of causality through prayer, he does answer them. And he answers our prayer far more frequently than we possibly realize. So, Two practical proposals as I finish. 
proposals in terms of how we can petition God. The first one is this. Be specific with your requests. I think we can tend to be rather vague when we pray. Lord, please bless Johnny. Well, well bless him with what? Let's, let's add some detail to that. That's a fairly vague prayer. We should name how we want Johnny to be blessed as clearly as we can. This is something I learned through Edith Schaefer. I mentioned her last week. Great woman of prayer who I had the privilege to work with. And once I asked her to pray for the branch that I was directing, branch of Labrie, because we had a financial shortfall. So Edith, please pray. And she just looked back at me as if this conversation's not ended. And uh, then she said, well, how much? And I said, well, several thousand, I reckon. She said, Andrew, I'm not satisfied. I want to know the exact amount that your branch is short so I can lay that request before him. And that's how she prayed. Sometimes to the penny. It's a good practice. The more specifically you name a request, the more real and concrete it becomes. So be specific as you lay your request before the Lord. And then a second proposal is, think about keeping a prayer journal. It's the only kind of journal I've ever kept. I keep one for myself, and I've kept another journal for the, the, the Christian organizations I've led over the years. Now, there's some wonderful benefits of keeping a prayer journal. First of all, it helps in my first proposal. You write down rather specifically what your request is before the Lord, and you write it down. You record it. But then the second great benefit is that it becomes a remarkable record of the Lord's answer to our prayers. When I'm spiritually discouraged, it happens quite often, I often go back to my prayer journal. And I'm amazed as I look back, even over a few months, to see how faithful the Lord has been. How many prayers he's answered. Often, to my shame, answers I didn't even recognize. And what often strikes me as I look at my prayer journal is that the answer was somewhat different from my original expectation. Yet, nevertheless, there's the answer. And what I also see when I look back in my prayer journal is that some things weren't answered. And when I look at those requests a year after, I think, sure, I'm glad he didn't answer that one. That wasn't just unwise. That was plain stupid. It's a great thing to keep a prayer journal. It's amazing how much it reveals. Good. Be specific. Keep a prayer journal. Steve said, be practical. I just got practical. Where's Zika? Zika Zika's going to come now, and he's going to lead us in prayer.